let's just pray. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that when everything is said and done, we are but creatures of dust, fashioned by your hand. We acknowledge this morning that when you first created us, you breathed into us a spirit. And then through what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection, you sent your Holy Spirit to dwell with our spirit so that we could have the kind of influence Jesus had in his time so that we could know him and make him known. I pray this morning that nothing I say will get in the way of what you want to say to these wonderful people. We pray that we will go out of this place today inspired, yes, challenged in our thinking, stretched in our spirits, but most of all, better equipped to do the one thing the only thing we couldn't do better in heaven and that is to impact our world we pray all that in Jesus great name amen I only believe that God wants to speak this morning to you as a church that's what I'm believing for are you I'm just doing something Paul never did, fixing my tablet. <laughs> he didn't have to worry about these things, you know. He often spoke for very long periods of time, so much so that one young man fell asleep, <laughs> fell out of a window and had to be healed. So that's one miracle we're praying will not happen this morning. <laughs> Amen. England at the end of the 17th century was not a particularly attractive place in which to live. There were very few chances for social or economic advancement, something like 50% of the population of Britain and England and Wales was considered to be moderately poor. 20% of the population were considered to be very poor. At the dawn of the 18th century, England had a gin problem. <clears throat> Gin was cheap to produce, you didn't need a license to sell it. And for many people, it was their only escape from a very dreary existence. And into this society, marked by alcoholism, poverty, and high mortality, rode a man who, along with a large team of co workers, inspired reform that changed the face of England and Britain. John Wesley graduated from Oxford University. He was ordained as a priest in the Church of England. He went on to pioneer the fastest growing network of Christians in Europe at the time and one of the most influential in Europe. In a way, this network was like one of the major church networks of today. Its leaders were innovators. They wrote their own music. 
They inspired new forms of worship. They evangelized in town squares and city streets. They planted small groups, many of which went on to to become great churches. And their approach was so strategic and so methodical that they came to be known as the Methodists. So many people came to Christ through these Methodists that church historians today talk about the Methodist revival. But that wasn't the end of their story. Decades later, that revival inspired social reform. The Clapham sect or the Clapham group was a small band of Christians who met regularly in London Their members came from the worlds of politics and academia and civil service and economics. There was even a brewer among their number. One of their leaders, you may have heard of, the parliamentarian William Wilberforce, fought for decades to end the practice of slavery in the British territories. The Clapham Group also pioneered one of the first anti-pornography groups in the world. It helped to set up the RSPCA. It worked tirelessly to reform the prisons. One writer has said that by the end of the 18th century, the ethos, the values of Clapham became the spirit of the age. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I call influence. These Christians and others like them taught us something very important this morning, that revival empowers reform. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, and you know it well, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. I believe that influence is the church's mandate. We are designed as Christians and collectives in churches to impact our culture, our society, more than it impacts us. Romans 12, 2 says this, that we're not to be squeezed into the mold or the dominant culture of our time, but because we are transformed through the renewing of our mind to live out the God kind of culture, what is good, acceptable and perfect to God. Our culture is stronger than the culture of the dominant society around us if we do certain things. To have that sort of influence, we need, among other things, a new understanding of this thing that we like to call revival. It's something we sing about, it's something we pray about, it's something we talk a lot about. But we need a new understanding of what it actually means in the Scriptures and what its true intent is. This promise in 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a response to a prayer that King Solomon prayed in public during the inauguration of the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon was asking in advance for what we would call revival. He was saying, Lord, if the people of Israel ever turn away from you, if they lose their passion for you, if their ardor grows cold, Father, please don't respond in kind. Reach out to them in love and restore them. And then God gives this promise, if my people who are called by my name. Now, there are two things that come out of that for me. The first one is this, that when God acts in response to prayer, the first people affected are the ones who do the praying. The first thing God does when he responds to intense prayer is he forgives my sins. He forgives your sins when you pray. 
The word revival, most of you know, doesn't appear in the Bible at all. And Christians mean so many things when they talk about revival that it would be instructive for me to stop for a moment and define what I mean in the context of this talk when I say revival. To revive something, literally in the English language, simply means to bring it back to life, to make it alive again, to revive it. And it's self-evident to me that you can't revive something that wasn't alive in the first place. According to the Bible, the world outside of Jesus is spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, in the past you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sins. You know, there are, we, we may be alive emotionally, we may be alive physically, we may be alive intellectually, we may be alive on a social level and good at meeting people, but until we know Jesus, we're carrying something dead inside us. There's a space within us that is not yet alive. And like the gentleman we heard about today through your testimony, we're carrying something and it's dead and we know it's dead, but we don't know what to do about it. So strictly speaking, when we talk about revival, my friends, we're not talking about something that happens in society. We're talking about something that happens in the church. Some church historians actually prefer the word awakening to revival, and I kind of agree with them. It's a much better description of what happens. A long time ago, when I turned 21, it is a long time ago, one of my next door neighbors gave me a, an alarm clock. Now, of course, we didn't have digital then. I know it's amazing we could even live, isn't it, without digital? How did we do it? We're talking in the Jurassic era. This is a long time ago. But it was a kind of a neat alarm clock. It had all kinds of different features, and I liked it. But there was one feature that I, I thought was not such a good idea because of what it did to me. It was the snooze button. How many have ever had experience, even digitally, with a snooze button? It was a wonderful alarm clock. It would wake me up. I would rouse myself out of bed most days. I would get up with a desire to do something that day that might make a difference to somebody's life using whatever small talents God had given me. But the snooze button allowed me an escape hatch. It was my ejector seat. I could just go back to sleep and pretend that the world didn't belong to me. I had no responsibility. And you know, throughout history, there are many instances of churches that have cried out to God for revival and seen an awakening brought by the Holy Spirit. And great things start to happen over a period of time. But three years later, they're back crying out for another one. Why? Because they hit the snooze button and went back to sleep when all the passion died down and people started writing songs about something else. There's little point being given an alarm clock if all you're going to do is keep hitting the snooze button. There's little point if I pray for an awakening only to go back to sleep when all the passion dies down. The second thing I find in Second Chronicles chapter 7 is this. When God responds to intense prayer, he wants to take things way beyond the church too. See, not only does he forgive our sins in Second Chronicles, it says he heals the land. Revival is not intended to be an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And that end is reform. 
Revival changes the church, but reform changes the world beyond the church. And focusing on revival without reform infers that God is only interested in the church. He doesn't care about the world. We heard this morning that the whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. He still cares about his world. If you believe that it's all about revival and not reform, that it stops with the church being revived, how do you explain the Old Testament prophets? These people who called for institutional reform throughout society, and not just in Israel, but in neighbouring nations as well. How do you explain, if it's all about revival and not reform, the life of the great John the Baptist? He came demanding repentance, not just an inner change, but a change in the way the whole of society related to each other. People who listened to him understood that. In Luke 8, some tax collectors came and said, hey, John, what do we do to line up with your message? He said, go have a prayer meeting. No, he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Stop ripping people off. Some soldiers came and said, what should we do? He said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Now, how practical is that? John the Baptist wasn't just talking revival here. He was talking about reform in institutions and cultures. How do you explain Philip, the evangelist, if you think it's all about revival, but never about reform? Here's a man in the midst of a revival in Samaria with miracles happening at every turn. But God takes him from the many and leads him to the one. One man sitting in a chariot on the road to Gaza. Now the chariot speaks of high status in society. This is a man of influence. This is a man who shapes policy decisions. The scripture says that he was a member of the court of the Queen of Ethiopia. Tradition says that he was a treasurer in the court. As far as we know, he might have been the first black African to come to Christ. And can you imagine the influence he might have had going back to his nation? Not just spiritually, but in terms of what he did as a court official, as a politician, if you will. It's not just about revival. Focusing on revival without thinking about reform is like hitting that snooze button. When Jesus taught us to pray, what's the first thing he taught us to ask for? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's worship. Hallowed, lifted above average, be your name. Thy kingdom come. That's the first thing we're told to ask for. The very first thing we're told to ask for is thy kingdom come. And you know the relationship between the church and the kingdom is a very important one in the Bible. Because they complement each other but they're not exactly the same thing. The relationship between the church and the kingdom is a bit like, not completely, but a little bit like the relationship between family and society. The family is the fundamental building block of society, isn't it? You can't say that you're working for the good of society if at the same time you're doing things to destroy the family. In a similar way, my friends, the church is the fundamental building block of the kingdom of God. And you can't really, I can't really say, you know, I'm a kingdom Christian. I don't need the church. I'm just a kingdom Christian. If I'm not in some way engaged in a pract- at a practical level with the work of the church. 
You can't take the local church with you tomorrow to work, but you take the kingdom everywhere you go in terms of its teaching, its values, its ethics, its power and authority. Jesus taught us to pray first for the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Here's what I believe the kingdom is. And this definition, you'll probably come across a better one. This is just mine. And it's come out of many years of thinking about this. The kingdom of God is wherever the loving rule of Christ is transforming human hearts, human relationships, and the cultures and institutions to which humans belong. The kingdom of God is wherever the loving, benevolent rule of Christ, you can't have a kingdom without a king, is transforming human hearts. That's where it starts. Jesus said the kingdom is within you. It starts in there, but it doesn't end there. Because Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get it out of you. It's looking for ways to, to change things in your workplace. It's looking for ways to change things in your university. It's looking for ways to, to alter something about the world in which you live. And in history, my friends, there have been many revivals within churches and even entire regions that now they've forgotten. They're buried under the sands of time. Why? Because there was no reformation of the world around them. There was no change in the business world. There was no change in politics. There was no change in, if you're in retail, there was no change in management. There was no change in healthcare. Some of you are involved in healthcare at some level. There was no change in transportation. No change. There was no reform. Today we have many areas of our society that need reform. Yes? Is that true? Hello? Decisions about better education are not made in church on a Sunday. Decisions about better policies about the poor are not made in church on a Sunday. Decisions about better nursing and healthcare are not made in churches on Sunday. But the church and Christians individually, I mean, by the church, we can have an influence there. We're talking a lot at the moment about COVID-19, aren't we? Which is a particular strain of coronavirus. By the way, the common cold is also a coronavirus. It's just that this one has a certain structure that we're not familiar with. And we, we shouldn't treat it lightly because it's a, it's a serious thing. However, paralyzing panic or lost perspective doesn't generate the solutions we need either in laboratories or in life. And without downplaying the importance of this, this disease, like any other disease, perhaps instead, we, instead of retreating into fatalism in our society, we should be taking it as a time to reflect and redeem the time. You know, especially as, as many people now are working from home or cutting down their contact with others, this might be an opportunity to pull back a little bit from our constant overstimulation and stress, our rush in life sometimes to pursue financial security or idealized lifestyle goals mixed with a high digital engagement can lead us to desacralize life, to lose the sense that life is sacred, that it's given to us by God for a great purpose. 
I believe and pray like you are that there will be a cure for this disease found soon. And before you all say, well, let's just pray for people to be supernaturally healed. I don't see why medicine is not as much healing as any other form that I have seen and been part of. Jesus is still the great physician and the gifts God gave us for medicine were God-given gifts for medicine. Hopefully a cure will be found soon for this COVID-19 and hopefully in the meantime, we will learn to take a little more time to think about our lives, to reflect on our lives. Socrates said, a life unexamined is a life not worth living. That could have come from the Bible. In fact, there are other verses of the Bible that reflect that very thought. So we could say today that disease management is an area where Britain needs reform. Even though our healthcare experts and workers, we thank God for them, I do. If you've had experience of healthcare, you know this country has a very good healthcare. The workers are very good. The system sometimes gets a bit clogged up, but the workers are wonderful. But there's need for reform in education. I don't have time to talk about this need for reform in Wales, in housing today. You say, what's that got to do with me? It's got everything to do with us. Our society is waiting for Christians who are revived and can express that through a form. You know, the world around us, the secular world, is looking for evidence of our revival in the guise of reform. That's what I love about Paul, the apostle. Paul was a man who understood this. You see, sometimes we read the Bible with such religious glasses on, we can't see half of what's going on in the book of Acts, for example. Now consider Paul. One of Paul's most leading uh, churches, most influential churches, was at the, the church at Ephesus. When we read Ephesians, that's the people we're reading about. And this was not started in a synagogue. Most of the churches of the time began in Jewish synagogues. This one was different. It was started in a university lecture hall. That's why I go so often into universities these days to speak to students as a futurist because they all want to know about the future. And at the same time to show them in ways they may not yet have explored that Christian worldview does have something to say to them. This was a university lecture hall and Paul for two years went in every afternoon when no one else was booking the room because it was too hot. Paul would go in and he would have a couple of hours of teaching people. Who were the people who came? They were people from the marketplace that he talked to during the day as a tent maker. He would say, you want to hear more about what I'm about? Come to the lecture this afternoon. You see, Paul understood that word apostle is not what you think it is. We know that the word apostle means messenger, envoy, someone who is sent. But actually it has another, a deeper meaning underlying that because when the word first appeared in about 380 BC, it meant a naval commander, an admiral, and sometimes the fleet of ships under his command. And what would happen is, Rome would send out an admiral, an apostle, apostolos in Greek, and his crew, who were sometimes collectively called the apostolos, and they would go out to bring the home culture to the culture of a new territory. That was their job. So on that ship were lawyers, tradespeople, engineers. These were people who were charged with taking Roman culture and planting it 
into other cultures. Churches who follow an apostolic pattern like this one won't just be about bigger crowds on Sundays, though we want that. They'll be concerned about influencing every area of society and bringing at least the values of the kingdom. You say, why? Because it's a heck of a lot easier to preach the gospel to people if they're ready to hear it. I could bring the same message here today in Johannesburg this morning. And I can almost guarantee you that I will get a bigger response when it comes to salvation there. It's nothing to do with me and it's nothing to do with you. It's got to do with the culture. In some parts of Africa, not all, there is still sort of a leftover of the missionary influence where there's a, an openness to the things of the kingdom, even if people don't really understand religious terminology. It's a little tougher here. It's not impossible. And when man says it's impossible, God says, hang on a second. I can still do this, you know. This ain't no new thing. I've been, they've been saying that to me forever, Mal. I can still do this. Sometimes churches, and I've seen it through the years, 42 years in the ministry, I've seen it. Churches act like, like fleets of ships going round and round in the, in the home harbour. They're too afraid to venture forth into new territories. They're too afraid of engaging people outside the church in any meaningful way. And I'm not talking about Sundays. I'm talking about where you're called to be. Do you know that only 10% of Old Testament Israel were priests? What were the other 90% doing? Were they were just leftovers? Were they were just extras in God's great drama? No, the 10% only existed to help the 90% with their work of service. I believe in this room today, there are technologists, there are engineers, there are, there are people involved in, in reception, uh, in some business, there are people involved in selling in some way, there are people in this room today raising families. Whatever it is, you are called, you are as called as I am. And you are the ones most like, and by the way, I spend 60% of my time or 50% of my time in the church world and 50% outside, so I'm kind of in the middle there. And I know what I'm talking about, I promise you. You are a better place to bring reform than any preacher or any worship leader. You are the ones who get to take the, the awakening that God has given you in the church, not just in evangelism, but in the way you do your job. At a young man, who came to have coffee with me one time in a place I meet with people in Pall Mall, which is a very nice area, some of you know it. And I use this place because it is a nice area and this building's a nice building. And I'm just a member of this thing and I invite people to come, we have coffee, sometimes I coach leaders, sometimes it's more informal. And this young man with tears in his eyes, he said, Mel, he had just finished working for Google and was now working in a new position. And he said, Mel, I just want every business I'm involved with and every business I start to make resource for the kingdom of God, to make money for the kingdom of God. And I said, that's not what you want. And it's not what God wants either. He went, said, God doesn't want your business. 
to be a resource for his kingdom. He wants it to be an expression of his kingdom. And he did this, he went, that changes everything, doesn't it? In the way we pay wages, the way we look after our teams, the way we look after our clients and customers. I'm not just talking to business people here today. I'm talking to you, whatever your role is, outside of Sunday. You and I are called to express the kingdom of God. What does life look like when Jesus is king? What a different society ours would be if people lived even a little more with a Christian ethic and a, a Christian worldview. You know what a Christian worldview is? Ephesians 1:21. God has made Christ the head of all things and given him as head over all things to the church. He's not just the head of religion. He's not just the head of church. He's the head of business in God's eyes. He's the head of law in God's eyes. He's the head of politics in God's eyes. My background was in architecture. He's the head of design in God's eyes. He's the head of technology and science and research in God's eyes. And our job, he's given as head to the church. Why? So that we will express in all of those areas and more what the headship of Jesus looks like. Do you not think that if, if we were having good ideas, people would listen to us on other things? I was asked in a pastor's conference not that long ago, about 10 years ago actually, now. What's the biggest challenge facing the church in Australia? And I said, this is pastors, and I said, water management. And the room went really quiet because they knew I was a futurist, but they knew I was a minister, so they wanted the minister answer. Well, it's, you've got to take more spiritual authority, you know, and you've got to pray a lot more and fast, and all of that's important. But I said water management for a reason. I said, think about it, ladies and gentlemen. Our country's going through the worst or most prolonged drought it's ever had. Do you not think that if people in our churches could help, and even in a small way, to solve this problem, those who were in a position to do so. Do you not think Australia might listen to us on other things, including spiritual things? You see, it's not all about revival, it's about reform. Let me make this really practical before I come to the last part today. I, I know, as surely as I stand here, that for some of you, this is a very unusual message. My style is a little unusual, good, I hope so. The content is definitely unusual for some. That's okay. And you may disagree with me. That's okay too. I'm not offended by that. I spent a lot of time in the media and the BBC and that, and I know what it's like to be disagreed with. I don't mind that. All I ask you today is think about it. And don't just think about it. Think about how you might be affected by it. You know, one of the areas that really does need reform today is technology. And I'm, I'm using this, this is not the theme of the message, of course, but it's just a, an example towards the end of the message to help you see what I mean by reform. We're starting to realize today that not all the effects of modern technology are good ones, and I'm a futurist, so I'm for technology. I'm a Christian, so I'm for technology. But one of the first intellectuals to understand that not all of the effects are good was a French 
sociologist, a Christian man by the name of Jacques Ellul. He was a professor at the University of Bordeaux. He was writing in the middle of last century when he wrote about what he called technique in French. Now, when he said technique, he didn't mean technology in the way we understand it. He didn't mean the tools of his time or the gadgets we use today. He was talking about something bigger than that. He was talking about the mindset that often rides on the back of technology. He noticed that from the Industrial Revolution onwards, we started to try to reduce tasks to their simplest level and then design machines to do that work for us. And we're doing that more now with robotics, aren't we? And that's a good thing in many ways. So he said, we've, we've made efficiency a major goal of our lives. Let's do things efficiently. Let's have efficiencies in time, efficiencies in energy expended, efficiencies in all sorts of areas. Let's make life more efficient. And then he went on to say this, efficiency is good as far as it goes, but when it becomes a primary goal, we rob ourselves of some of our essential humanness or humanity. Let me illustrate that. How many of you have used a sat-nav in your car? Seven people. Well, that's fine. I'm about to make a point. You might come out quite well from that. With a sat-nav, you know, you just program in where you want to go and, and the thing tells you the quickest way to get there. Well, in theory. In the old days, 10 years ago, we used a thing called a map. Some of us have heard of a map. You take the map, here I am at point A, I want to get to point B, here's the shortest way to get there in a straight line, but oh, hang on a minute, look on the right hand side of that line, there's a place I've never seen before, I've heard so much about it, I might like to visit that, so I'll change my direction. On the left hand side there's a park, an adventure park, my kids would love that. Oh, we've got to go there on the way. So you make a detour. A sat-nav will not allow you to do that. Why? Because a sat-nav is built for efficiency. Human experience and relationships sometimes suffer when we make efficiency our life's priority. And today we see what Professor Alul was actually talking about. Do you know... That God is not primarily interested in making me more efficient. There's nothing wrong with efficiency, don't misunderstand, but it's not his primary goal for me. Jesus did not say in John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it more efficiently. <laughs> Christians are not anti-technology. Can we get that straight through history? It's been Christians who've adapted and adopted technology often first. And I meet technologists all over the world who are committed Christians. And that's why they're investing in technology, because they believe in reform. Technology needs reform. In so many areas, we could talk about that for hours. But reform, like revival, starts with me. So when... I'm using this as an example of how we bring reform. It's not all about going out and picketing a government or that can work, but you know, demonstrating that it's fine as far as it goes, 
But it's not all about that. You say, I can't reform anything. I'm not a minister of government. You misunderstand what reform is. It starts with us. So with our technology, for example, instead of just turning on the thing and using it, we ask questions first. How can I use this technology to honour God? How can I exercise stewardship over my resources using this technology? My money, my time, what can I use on this gadget that will help me do that? How can I use it to maintain and build healthy relationships? Do you know there's a growing number of people in the world who are staying on dating apps even when they're married? And a recent study found that 90% of them say I'm there because I want to make new friends. Actually, (laughs) I think some of them are there to keep their options open. You know, this doesn't work out. No. Of course, if you are married, here's the bad news or the good news, depending on your perspective, you don't have any more options. This is it. Enjoy that. Celebrate it. Now, I'm not saying that if you've been through a marriage breakup, you know that God has nothing. But of course, I'm not saying that. The Lord God is God of all. He can help you. He can give you a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, a sixth chance. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. I'm talking about the ideal that we should be trying to pursue with his help. And here's the other question we asked, the last one about technology, as an example of reform. What adjustments do I need to make so that efficiency isn't my goal? I want to try something this week. Try doing something inefficiently, deliberately. Don't go to work tomorrow. And say, I heard this guy. He told me to be sloppy. My performance doesn't matter. No, what I'm saying is in your own time, try doing something that doesn't involve technology. That's a bit inefficient. Use a map, maybe. Do arithmetic by hand, maybe. Why not deliberately add one non-tech experience to your timeline? Take a more picturesque route to to, to work in the morning. Without technology. Go through the park and look up at the trees because the original Twitter is in the trees. (laughs) Why not show someone a kindness in person? It's relatively easy to text someone, you know, I like you or whatever. But, you know, sometimes it means more when it comes eyeball to eyeball. I love doing that in restaurants. I, I try often when I go to a restaurant, especially with a, with a friend who brings me to a restaurant, I'll try and compliment the waiter or the waitress simply because they never, ever get that. You say to someone, hey, thank you. Your service is really, really good today. Something specific. I, your smile, just fantastic. Thank you. And they straighten up. Have you seen that? It's a non-tech thing. Do one thing that makes you smile today that doesn't involve technology. What am I saying? This message isn't about technology. It's about reform. I'm just trying to get you to think, to find innovative, fresh ways to use things like technology. And it could be anything else we could talk about. In ways that make a small but deliberate effort 
to reform how people use it, how people see it. Do you know, if enough people made those decisions, even in small ways, they become big in their ripple effect. As we pray and believe for, for revival and awakening across churches, let's also look for ways to bring reform. Remembering that revival empowers reform. And while we pray for revival in church, let's work to produce reform in the wider world in specific areas of need. Lord, we thank you for your word, even if it's unusually presented. We thank you that we have the freedom in this wonderful country to gather together and hear discussion of the word of God. We thank you today that you revive us. Sometimes when we just about think we've finished, we're done, we can't take another breath in the race, you appear out of nowhere and lift us again. Say, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. And you remind us, Jesus, of who you are, the head of all things. We thank you for those seasons of reviving in our own lives. But Lord, we pray today that like Solomon, we will see not only our inner change, the forgiving of our sins, the healing of our problems, but also that, that we will be part of bringing healing to the land. Not just preaching to people, that's part of it, but, but just being the kingdom of God in ways they can understand and benefit from. Lord, we pray for anybody here who doesn't know Jesus, who has never said the most powerful word in any language, yes, to the most powerful friend they will ever have. We pray they'll say yes in a moment. Even now, they'll say yes. That they'll get out of the driver's seat of their lives it's easy for us to drive our own lives and go heading down one-way streets the wrong way. Having to make U-turns all the time. Getting so tired and worn down. I pray they'll get out of the driver's seat. And give the wheel to the only one who knows why they were born none of us wants to die before we know why we were born. We pray all that in Jesus' name.